Well, we've been a few weeks now in this passage from Luke 16, and you might be thinking to yourself, uh, what's left to cover? We've talked about the parable, we've talked about the meaning of the parable, what was Jesus saying by sharing this story, what's the significance of it, and then we began last week to look specifically at the comments of Jesus at the end of the parable, uh, Luke 16, verses 13 to 15, and last week we focused uh, most specifically on verse 13, where Jesus says, you can't have two masters. And so we, we spoke of what it means to be a master of money and not allow it to master you instead. So uh, we're doing a series on the subject of stewardship, the practice of generous stewardship. And again, let me remind you that stewardship is one of four upward-directed practices that we prioritize as a local church. We do these things both individually to deepen our own personal relationship with the Lord, and we practice these things together because they are biblical practices that the Word of God indicates help to grow our, our relationship with God. They draw us into deeper relationship with Him, and they establish a deeper trust uh, in Him and uh, likewise, his trust in us increases as well as we practice these things. So the four upward-directed practices, again, are worship, which we spoke of in January, discipleship, which we spoke of in February, stewardship, which we're on now, and prayer, which we're going to begin to talk about next week, along with the power of the Holy Spirit in particular. So it's as we practice these biblical priorities together that we experience increased growth, increased faith, increased maturity in Christ, a new and deeper measure of relationship with the living God. I want to begin this morning with a story, an illustration uh, that I came across from a fellow vineyard pastor uh, in Columbus, Ohio. Many of you might be familiar with the ministry of Rich Nathan. He pastors one of the largest uh, vineyard churches in the country in uh, Columbus, and uh, he shared some time ago a series of messages on the subject of giving, and this illustration comes from one of his messages called The Grace of Giving. He said, reflecting on what people are known for, um, as a pastor, I'm, I'm called upon to occasionally do the funeral of someone in our church family. And even when I know that person, I always like to get together with their close family members before I write the funeral sermon. I always ask the same question of the family. I say, tell me, what was the defining characteristic of your husband or your mother? What exactly were they like? What qualities stood out to you as you think about their lives? Now, it's always shocking to me, again, this is uh, quoting from Rich's message, it's always shocking to me when I read obituaries in the newspaper and the defining trait of someone's life is that they were a diehard Buckeye fan. You see these things all the time. The first line might read, Bob Smith died on January 20, 2011. And then the second sentence, he loved the Buckeyes. In fact, his house was painted scarlet and gray. So was his car, his basement, and his dog. Bob took a home equity loan to purchase season tickets for the Buckeyes for the last 44 years. Bob almost didn't get married because he suffered a severe depression following the Buckeyes' 1969 loss to Michigan. 
When I read obituaries in which the defining characteristic of an individual is that they were a Buckeye fan or a NASCAR fan, I think how sad to focus one's entire life on something so trivial. He's right, you know. That's a profound insight from Rich Nathan. And in contrast to the story he told of Bob the Buckeye fan, let me tell you for just a moment, if you'll indulge me here, about a Buckeye that was known for being a cheerful giver. And that's my mother-in-law, who just went home to be with the Lord. If there was a defining characteristic that I could identify about her life, it's that she was a cheerful giver. Countless hours, hours upon hours given to serving others, including our own family. In fact, a few years ago after we uh, took uh, a sibling group of five new kids into our family, Sandy, my mother-in-law, would come to our house once a week and spend half a day helping clean and do the laundry and do the dishes and prepare meals for our family. Not because we asked her to, but because she wanted to help. She wanted to contribute to, the cha- to meeting the challenges that our family was facing in that season. What's interesting about Sandy, as I reflect on her life, uh, which I've been doing a lot of this week, along with our other family members, is that she grew up in a family of givers. And so uh, I remember hearing the story that, that her parents, upon leaving church on Sunday morning, would routinely drive around the city where they grew up in rural Ohio, looking for someone that they could invite home for lunch. They didn't invite someone from church. That would be too easy. They would drive around until they spied someone, and then they would stop the car, get out, and invite that person to come over for Sunday dinner with their family. That's the kind of family that Sandy grew up in. And uh, she took that upon herself, and so much so that uh, I I recently heard the story that she and her husband, Bob, my father-in-law, were driving to church in Eaton Rapids about two years ago, saw a woman walking along the side of the road, obviously without transportation. They stopped, introduced themselves to her, offered to give her a ride to wherever she was going, struck up a friendship, later invited her to church and then home for dinner after church. And upon uh, conversation with this dear woman, found out that she was extremely poor and destitute. And so they began... Uh, to take people from their church over to her house to repair and to clean and to help this old widow who otherwise was helpless. That's the heart of a cheerful giver. And giving doesn't necessarily have to manifest in giving a financial gift, although that's certainly one manifestation of it, It manifests by giving your time. It manifests in giving your talent. It manifests in sharing your table with others. To be a cheerful giver has many dimensions, all of which reflect the heart of a giving God. There's a great verse that's complementary to what we're going to look at from Luke 16. It's in 2 Corinthians 8. It's verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 8. 
Paul there says, just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. Think about that. See that you excel in the grace of giving. That was my mother-in-law. She excelled in the grace of giving. She didn't always have money to give, but she would give whatever she had to bless and serve others. So what if you could be known for excelling at something? What would it be? What do you want to excel at? What do you want to be known for after you're dead and gone? And have you ever considered the possibility of excelling at the grace of giving? How might you do that if you're interested? Well, the answer has to do with shaping your heart so that it gives freely, generously, and for the right reasons. So last Sunday, we focused on Jesus' words in verse 13 that money can easily become our master. I want to look with you now at verses 14 and 15, the very end of this passage from Luke 16, where Jesus confronts the Pharisees. And he confronts them specifically because their hearts were not right before God. Look with me again at these last few verses from the account that Gerald read. Beginning at verse 13, no one can serve two masters, Jesus says. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And then Luke gives us this insight, this little commentary about the audience that Jesus was speaking to. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. And he said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. You see, Jesus gave this clear warning about the idolatry of money, which is the focus of of verse 13, and then he pointed out that the religious Pharisees exemplified being lovers of money. And specifically, Jesus said, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. Now, by the way, that was not a compliment, right? So here's a key insight that we can begin with as we think about the Pharisees and the poor example that they offer us of giving. I want you to see that that giving fails the heart test whenever it's done as an act of religious legalism simply to impress others. Giving fails the heart test whenever it's done as an act of religious legalism to impress others. You see, what earned the Pharisees a rebuke from Jesus was their religious legalism, their pride. They wanted to look good in the eyes of other people, but their goodness and their giving was superficial. It wasn't from the heart. As Jesus indicated, the problem was that it didn't come from 
the right type of heart. God sees the heart, and in this case, the implication is what he sees is not so good. In fact, I'm not sure really what's worse in this case. Is it worse not to give anything at all, or is it worse to give with the wrong motives? You see, the Pharisees, as Jesus said on numerous occasions, were religious hypocrites. You know what that word means, right? It's the Greek word hypocrite. literally means actor. They were religious actors, putting on a good show so that others would think highly of them. They were known for giving religiously, not generously and joyfully. They gave, but they gave for the wrong reasons. They gave to impress other people. They wanted to be seen and respected as wealthy benefactors. They wanted to look good on the outside in the eyes of others more than they wanted to be good on the inside in the eyes of the Lord. So Jesus' words then in Luke 16 echo other similar passages where he rebuked the Pharisees because of their hypocrisy their religious acting. For example, consider these words from the Sermon on the Mount. You're probably familiar with them if you've read uh, those chapters in Matthew. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 to 4. Jesus says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. For if you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So Jesus here is confronting giving for the wrong reason or the wrong, with the wrong motive. Here again, he's speaking to the Pharisees, hypocrites, who often followed the letter of the law but not the spirit of the law. And he was confronting them for, for doing the right thing but doing it for the wrong reasons. He didn't say not to give. Instead, he instructed them to give secretly. He was confronting their habit of giving ostentatiously, right, for the attention that it would bring to them from other people. Another example of giving religiously is found later in Matthew's Gospel. And again, the Pharisees are the focus of Jesus' warning. There's a consistency here between these stories and others like them. In Matthew 23, 23 and 24, we read this. Jesus says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides. You strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. So again, Jesus is affirming the practice of giving But he's confronting the motive of the Pharisees, the method of the Pharisees. He says, in essence, don't neglect 
to give a tithe. That's all good. But if you think you can just do that and yet neglect even more important matters of the law, like justice, mercy, and faithfulness, then you've missed the point. You're fooling yourselves. Don't strain out a gnat only to swallow a camel. So with these examples in mind, anybody here anxious to be like the Pharisees? Come on now, you can admit it. Of course not, right? This is not the example we want to follow. The message of Jesus is consistent throughout the Gospels. In these and other examples, he made it clear, perfectly clear, that giving is important, but particularly giving with the right heart. Giving with the right heart. God sees what lies beneath the surface of our, of our behavior. He knows our hearts. This is what Jesus says, and it's so insightful. I mean, think about the power of these words. Jesus said to the Pharisees, God knows what's in your heart. You can't hide it from him. It's not a secret to God where your heart lies. He sees beneath the surface of how you act outwardly, and he knows what the true motives of your heart are, for good or for bad. So if your hearts are not where they should be with regard to the practice of stewardship, then you know, we're not really fooling God. We might be fooling other people, but we're not really fooling God. He knows better. And in that sense, this, I'd like to think that this message really just amounts to an invitation to give your heart to Jesus all over again. Right? We all have to do that once, at least, the first time we enter the kingdom and come into relationship with God by faith in Christ. But Jesus is all about asking you to give your heart to him over and over and over, right? Because we're constantly discovering by the conviction of the Holy Spirit that there are areas in our hearts that are not yet right, not yet submitted, not yet walking in obedience to to Christ. So the invitation, in essence, this morning is that you would give your heart to Jesus again and let him shape it so that he can make your heart into the heart of a cheerful giver. That's what he wants for us, both individually and as a church. He wants us to excel in the grace of giving. That's a great invitation, isn't it? Just as Paul challenged the Corinthians to step up and become known for their generosity, he would do the same for us. So let's talk then about the heart of giving that God desires to characterize each one of our lives. Let's talk about what shapes and defines a heart that God sees and finds delight in instead of rebuke. And to do that, let me take you back in biblical history to where the practice of giving to God, often referred to as tithing, first began. Let me give you a couple of great examples from the book of Genesis, and I want you to see here that the practice of tithing was mandated in the law to shape the hearts of God's people. That was its purpose from the very beginning. Now, even before the Mosaic law came about, the practice of giving or tithing to God was commonplace among God's people. 
In fact, it begins way back in Genesis chapter 4 with the story of Cain and Abel. Listen to these few verses that describe the offerings that Cain and Abel brought before the Lord and what happened as a result. Genesis 4, 2-7, Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And also, Abel brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Now we all know, right, that that warning went unheeded and Cain tragically killed his brother Abel. But what was the difference between their gifts to the Lord? What was the difference between Abel's gift and Cain's gift? What made Abel's sacrifice more favorable to God? Well, according to verses 3 and 4, Abel's offering was fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock, while Cain's offering was some of the fruits of the soil. This is a subtle distinction, but it's important. The difference is not between an offering of animal fat and an offering of plants. God doesn't necessarily care what you give him in that sense. It's between a careless, thoughtless offering and a choice, generous offering. You see, motivation and heart attitude are all important here. God looked with favor on Abel's offering because it represented the best of what he had to give. It was from the firstborn of his flock. And it represented his faith in God's provision. The key word is firstborn which indicates the recognition that all of the productivity of the flock was from the Lord and all of it belonged to him and Abel in giving the first fruits of his flock was recognizing God as the supreme giver. This is the first indication we get from Scripture that an acceptable offering to the Lord is meant to be what's called the first fruits or the first portion of what you've received from God. As with Abel, this offering is meant to reflect the disposition of our hearts as we give the first fruits back to the Lord of whatever we've received from his hand. Now, fast forward a few chapters and you'll come to another example. Fascinating. An example uh, from the life of Abraham. Genesis 14, 17 to 20. After Abram returned from defeating Keterleomer and the kings allied with him, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shava, that is, the king's valley. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth 
of everything. Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This is the first example where we see explicit reference to the giving of one-tenth, which is literally what the word tithe means. In fact, both the Hebrew and Greek words used in Scripture that are commonly translated tithe literally mean tenth. So a tithe, then, is simply a word from Old English that means tenth and came to be used in place of the word tenth. In Abraham's case, what may seem odd to us at first glance is that that this gift was actually given to the king of Salem, not to God. But the key to understanding Abram's gift is found in verse 18, where we're told that Melchizedek was also a priest of the Most High God who blessed Abram in God's name. So in this case, Abram gave to Melchizedek as a representative of God. And this was his way then of giving to God. So we could say then that the practice of tithing or giving one-tenth of your income literally goes all the way back to the example of Abraham whom the New Testament refers to as the father of our faith. And note again that this was before the giving of the Mosaic Law which mandated tithing. Abraham did it out of the overflow of his gratitude to God. It was a get-to, not a got-to. Now, with those couple of examples in mind, I want you to see what the law says specifically with regard to tithing. And there's two uh, two references here that I think are particularly helpful. The first one's in Leviticus, Leviticus 27, 30 to 34. Listen to this description of what a tithe really is. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Whoever would redeem any of their tithe must add a fifth of the value to it. Every tithe of the herd and flock, every tenth animal that passes under the shepherd's rod will be holy to the Lord. No one may pick out the good from the bad or make any substitution. If anyone does make a substitution, both the animal and its substitute become holy and cannot be redeemed. These are the commands of the Lord uh, that the Lord gave Moses at Mount Sinai for the Israelites. These are actually the closing words of the book of Leviticus. And they bring our attention to the notion that, that God had very specific instructions for his people to follow, given through Moses at Mount Sinai, and commonly referred to now as the Mosaic Law. And again, bear in mind here that, of course, the New Testament urges us to do away with legalism and to live and walk by the Spirit, not by the law. Yet, it, at the same time, it upholds the law as God's holy standard for human behavior. So we have to respect the law and understand the intent of the law while not being bound to it by legalism. So here we see again in these references from, from Leviticus that the first tenth of everything is described literally as belonging to God. Think about that. And because Israel at this time was an agrarian society, the currency of the day was produce and livestock. It wasn't necessarily money, per se. So they would give back to the Lord the first tenth of whatever they received, whatever they possessed, whether it was cattle or whether it was grain. 
So the principle is the same. The idea was simply that everything a person received was from God's gracious provision. So the giving back of one-tenth, and specifically the first tenth, was meant to gratefully and rightfully acknowledge God as the giver. That's the purpose of tithing from a biblical standpoint. Now add to that one more reference from Deuteronomy. Hang with me. I know this is thick stuff, but, but really important and insightful. Consider these words from Deuteronomy 14 about the purpose of tithing. Verses 28 and 29. At the end of every three years, the Lord says, bring all the tithes of that year's produce and store it in your towns so that the Levites, who have no allotment or inheritance of their own, and the foreigners, the fatherless, and the widows who live in your towns may come and eat and be satisfied, and so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Think about that. What what is God instructing his people to do? Why is he asking them to collect this tithe? And what does he want them to do with it? What's its purpose? Well, beyond its purpose in the hearts of the givers, with these words, Moses is saying, the tithe that's given to the Lord is meant to bless others. It's meant to be given away. And in this case, he specifies that it was given first for the Levitical priests, and then secondarily and likewise for the poor, aliens, orphans, and widows who had no other means to provide for themselves. So the, all, that was, all that was received was collected and then it was distributed again to people in need. And this is an important practical insight regarding how tithes were and I think still are meant to be used, right? The money given to God through local churches like ours carries on this tradition. Though they're given unto the Lord, tithes are gifts that are given for the benefit of people. In this way, they release God's provision to those who receive them. Let me give you a case in point here. I've, I've often had people, and I, you know, it's a little awkward to talk about this, but let's just be real, right? I've often had people ask me how I provide for my family as a pastor because they don't know. They're, they're curious, but they're surprised sometimes, particularly if they're unchurched, to learn that my income is based entirely on the gifts of other people. That's how I pay the bills and put food on the table. And I have to explain to them that that I am paid a salary, but nobody's compelled to pay me directly for my services, right? So, for example, I don't charge for pastoral counseling. If you were going to go to a professional counselor, it would cost you, you know, $60, $80, $100 an hour, depending on their Uh, their experience, their reputation, their professionalism. I don't charge for that service because I see it as a part of my calling and my, my responsibilities in serving as a pastor of a local flock like this. So as with the Levites then in the Old Testament, part of what the church receives from the gifts of its members is meant to provide for the services of its priests or pastors. So what I want you to see then with all these references from the Old Testament is is a a short series of significant insights about the nature of tithing, right? A tithe is a tenth. A tithe is the first fruits or first and best portion of what we receive. 
A tithe is given to God to express gratitude and honor for what we've received. And in this sense, it's actually an act of worship. A tithe is given to God to express faith or trust for what we're yet to receive as well. A tithe may be given or passed on uh, to the priests as God's representatives among his people. And a tithe, and this is, I think, most important here, and this is what I want to finish with, a tithe is an outward expression of an inward reality, a right heart before God. A right heart before God. In short, as part of the Mosaic Law, what I want you to see in all of these references is that tithing was intended to shape the hearts of God's people, to help them remember and recognize that God is their provider, that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. And it was intended to teach them how to be genuine and generous givers. So with the few moments we have left then to wrap up this, both this series and this particular message, let me end with one last insight that gets right to the heart of what we're talking about. What kind of heart is God looking for and wanting to find in us? Here's the way I would, I would boil it all down. Giving that genuinely honors and pleases God has to come from a thankful and joyful heart. It has to come from a thankful and joyful heart. Let me give you a couple ways to think about this and understand it. And the first one has to do with seeing and recognizing what Jesus has done for us. Right? As we recognize that God sees what's in our hearts when it comes to giving, we have to work with him to cultivate the right heart and attitude about this practice. So how do we do that? Well, let's think about the example of Jesus first. Hey, welcome back, kids. If you want to come and sit down with your families, you can do that right now. I'm just going to finish up in a few minutes, okay? So, so consider with me the giving that's reflected in the life of Jesus. I don't have time to go down uh, the list of examples, but I want you to think more, uh, more specifically with me about what was demonstrated in the giving of his life for yours. And Paul refers to this in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Listen to these words, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. That's the giving heart of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And of course, Paul's not speaking here of material poverty and riches, but he is saying that how Jesus gave his life for us is the supreme example of giving that should inspire us. If you want to be Christ-like, giving is fundamental. Giving is foundational. The point is that Jesus gave up all the rights and rewards of his heavenly throne to step down and become one of us. Then on top of that, He gave up his life so that our lives could be enriched. That's giving. As the gospel writers suggest, the act of Jesus' death and burial was like a grain of seed being planted that produced an incredible harvest of righteousness. 
It's the principle of sowing and reaping. And in this, we see the heart and character of God clearly expressed. Giving generously and joyfully is part of who God is and how God acts toward us. So it follows then that if we aim to become more godly and Christ-like, then giving generously has to be a priority in our lives. These words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 8 actually serve as his introduction to a lengthy discourse, it's actually two full chapters of Scripture, 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9, on the subject of giving generously. And let me encourage you to shape your own heart even further uh, by reading those chapters sometime later this week as you have opportunity. But just to give you a bit more of a teaser, here's the conclusion that Paul comes to in chapter 9, verse 7. He says, Each of you should give what you've decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. God loves a cheerful giver. And he sees what lies in your heart. He sees the motives, right? So don't give reluctantly or under compulsion. Give joyfully. Give gratefully. Paul here is not commanding, but he is strongly encouraging because he recognizes that invitation works better than obligation. This is about our motivation, right? Being made to do it potentially takes something away from the joy of doing it freely. So where does the joy of giving come from then? Well, first of all, it comes, again, as I've said already, in recognizing what God has given to us and being thankful for it. To to have joy or find joy in thanking God for what he's given to you is, is critical to how this works. But then secondarily, as I've hinted already, there's joy in blessing others. There's joy in recognizing that what we give will create joy and produce joy in the lives of others. So these two sources of joy then are what Paul describes at length in 2 Corinthians 8 and and, and 9. And essentially he's explaining here that by meeting the needs of others and giving generously, we are blessing God and we're blessing other people at the same time. And we're releasing our own gratitude for what we've received, which should be a joy to us. So if you're not experiencing any joy in giving or gratitude in giving, the implication is that your attitude's wrong about it. If you look at it as an obligation and you're doing it begrudgingly, then your approach to it is is mixed up. This is meant to be seen as an opportunity and a blessing, as an act of, of sheer, unadulterated gratitude and joy. So let me finish then by giving you an invitation again. Our time is up here, so I'm going to skip to the end and and just focus with you on what it means for us to put this into practice. There are many other examples I could point to from Scripture, and one that I find uniquely compelling is the example of uh, what happened when David 
raised money for the building of the temple in Jerusalem. He wanted to build that temple himself. But God said, no, you're not the right one to do it. Your son Solomon will be the one to build the temple, but I'll allow you to prepare for that. And so David gave generously to the construction of the temple, and then he rallied the, to, you know, the, the people of Israel to the cause. He shared the vision, spoke the vision, and, and said to people, Who, who's ready? Who's ready to come with me? to prepare for the building of the temple? Who's ready to consecrate themselves to the Lord? Who's ready to give generously so that the Lord would be honored with a house that bears his name? And what we find in 1 Chronicles 29, um, after that offering was received, is an incredible celebration filled with gratitude and joy. Listen to this. David praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise to you, Lord, the God of our father Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and on earth is yours. Yours, Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. And so now, our Lord, we give you thanks and we praise your glorious name. But who am I? And who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you. And we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are foreigners and strangers in your sight, as were all your ancestors. Our days on earth are like a shadow without hope. Lord our God, all this abundance that we've provided for building you a temple for your holy name comes from your hand, and all of it belongs to you. I know, my God, that you test the heart and are pleased with integrity. All these things I've given willingly and and with honest intent. And now I've seen with joy how willingly your people who are here with you have given to you. Lord, the God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep these desires and thoughts in the hearts of your people forever and keep their hearts loyal to you. This is an amazing picture of gratitude and joy in giving to the Lord for his honor and glory. And, and it's that story, honestly, that inspires me to, to just invite you once again to ask the Lord how much he might encourage you to give to our brothers and sisters at Epicenter of Worship. I want to close with that invitation again because I think it's a practical example for us to do what we've been learning. It's a practical example, but it's not for our own benefit. That's the beauty of it. It's to bless others. It's to serve others. And it's to glorify the Lord and express our gratitude to him for all that we've received. And you know, I've, I've felt led to this and wanted to ask you to do this for a very specific reason. Many of you know that I have a, a close relationship with Pastor Sean, Sean Holland. I've spent a lot of time building that relationship with him and and I'm excited for the way that our churches have partnered together in ministry and come together on special occasions like Good Friday. I want you to recognize that 
that folks in the African-American community often feel disadvantaged in our culture. They feel disadvantaged. may not always be true in every circumstance, but that's how they often feel. And what I've sensed in the Spirit is that, that this gift is a powerful way for us to say to them, we love you, we bless you, and we are excited to sow into your ministry. We're excited to partner with you. And we want to give you a gift that will bless you. Friends, stewardship is about how we view and spend both our money and our lives. And for that reason, it's, it's a huge priority for us to practice this together. Let's do it. Are you with me? Amen. Let's pray.